poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson, and today's guest on CPG, Mike Nori, just took down event number 30, the $1,500 monster stack at this year's fall WSOP for a tidy $610,000. Hilariously, Mike pushed back our conversation twice in the days leading up to our time together, because his deep run in the monster stack just kept right on rolling day after day after day. Who says the CPG run good isn't the real deal? If you're not familiar with Mike, he's a longtime high stakes mixed game crusher, and this will be his second appearance on the show. So if you love what you hear, and I can't imagine you not, be sure to check out the back catalog after you're done with this show to learn more about Mike's poker origin story. And now, without any further ado... I bring to you a brand new WSOP bracelet winner, longtime poker pro, and high stakes mixed game beast, Mike Nori. Mr. Nori, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you been? Good. Thanks for having me back, Brad. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. The first question that I ask is... What have you been up to since round one? Let's catch uh, up. Let's see. Uh, played a lot of poker, um, whether it's been online or live. And I've been playing a decent amount in Vegas, cash game wise. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the World Series started and I won a bracelet. So that was really fun and pretty that awesome. Was okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just kind of been... Playing poker and uh, doing the same thing, but the results have been pretty good lately. So that's good. Always nice to be on an upswing. Yeah. H- how are the cash games out there at the WSOP? Uh, cash games are very good. I've been kind of focusing more on tournaments um, since the World Series started, but I was out here. I've been, you know, like the, I got out here two weeks early. So that I could play just cash games before because I knew I was going to want to play a lot of tournaments. So those two weeks before the games were really good. And I've, when I've been out of tournaments, I've gone and played some high stakes mixed games and I've been doing okay at that. So what, what, what are high yeah. stakes in the mixed game? Uh, anywhere from three and 600. And I've played a couple six and 1200 sessions. So nice. Yeah. That sounds sounds like a good time. What's what's the expected swing on a 600 1200 mixed game session? Probably like plus or minus like 50 60k roughly depending on how crazy the game is. Obviously it can be more, but that's probably about average for those stakes. Good approximation. Yeah. Cool man. Um let let's dive into the bracelet. We're not just going to Yeah. I'm just going to have it as a bullet point. Let's talk about talk about how it went down. The your tournament slate that you prepared to play, um, all your plans. Yeah. So basically, I kind of was just in the next tournament up mode. Basically, like 
it didn't matter what the game was. And, you know, I just kind of would just take day by day and just be like, okay, this is the next tournament there. Like, I don't mind late regging stuff or even like max late regging tournaments. Um, so I just kind of would just be next tournament up. I wasn't playing two tournaments at the same time ever, but I would, you know, whatever tournament I was in, I would just focus on that tournament. And then once I was out of that tournament, just see what was next and figure out what I wanted to enter and go from there. So with the monster stack, uh, I originally had played pretty funny story. Actually, I was playing the 1500 deuce to seven, no limit tournament first. Like I wasn't even, I was considering playing the monster stack, like either the next day or not at all, depending on how I did in these smaller mixed tournaments, because I think my edge in the smaller mixed tournaments is bigger than the large field, no limit tournaments. So I played, I busted and I re-entered this small 1500 no limit single draw uh, tournament right away. Both, both bullets, I was out right away. But that tournament started at 3 p.m. I started late. There was an hour left of the Monster Stack registration. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go play this for an hour and a half on day one. And then I could have tomorrow off to play cash games or play golf or whatever. So, like, that sounded appealing to me. So, I was like, okay. I, like, I wasn't even planning on playing this tournament because that tournament started at 10 a.m. And uh, the other event started at 3 p.m. So, like, I didn't even have – it wasn't even a consideration to play. Yeah. You just you just happen to like snap bust out two bullets and be available to play. Correct. And it was like right after dinner break and they left registration open longer than they normally do in these the events that start at 10 a.m. Normally they cut them off at dinner, but this one they cut off at like 8 p.m. if I recall correctly. So went bought in. I mean, this is a freeze out event, so I couldn't even play tomorrow if I wanted to play the following day. So this was my only shot at it. So you get down, sit down with 50K starting chips, and uh, I bagged, I believe, 220K on day one, which was good stack. And then... How, how many blinds did you sit down with nearing the end of late range? I, I, I sat down with 50K at 800, 1600. So just over 30 blinds. Gotcha. Um. So- not yeah. not super deep, and I guess you played two hours, right? Yeah, roughly about two hours. I played uh, about two levels. <laughs> so we we 4X in two levels. We we ran good. We did good. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. So you, you didn't get your day of golfing. You had to come back for day two of the Monster Stack? Well, no, I had Saturday off. I think I played golf that day, but I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, I think I played golf that day. So had Saturday off. Sunday, the restart was at 10 a.m., which is during football. And I like watching football. And I'm in a lot of like different football gambling pools and all of that. So I enjoy watching football on Sundays. But this tournament started at 10 a.m. on Sunday, which is right when the West Coast football games kick off. So watching them kind of on the big screen and not, you know, a little bit in autopilot, not hundred percent focus during that time. There's still a ton of people left in this tournament. I'm just, you know, kind of still expecting to be, you know, just on to the next tournament. Cause <laughs> expecting to bust, to bust relatively, well, relatively soon. Right. Well, not that I was expecting to bust because I'm always trying my hardest, but I was just, you know, it's more of a feeling of 
there's always something else to play. So it's like, you can't be too hard on yourself if you get knocked out because there's always the next something else up or something else to play or whatever. Sure. Like during this two months, it's like poke, very poker focused. So, you know, but I was watching a little bit of football and, you know, I would say I'm not, I was not a hundred percent dialed in where in the later stages, you know, you, I could definitely tell the difference between, you know, being, you know, dialed in and like kind of paying attention and, you know, watching what people's tendencies are and kind of picking up on that stuff, because that's really important in tournament poker. Like at the final table, I could tell you basically like, give you like a nice little rundown on each player, even though some of them I only played with at the final table, but, and maybe for only a short period of time, but, you know, I could, you know, right now I could be like, okay, this player does this, this, and this, in this spots, like I can take advantage of him in these certain spots. What do you, um, so it, it makes sense, you know, you've, there's more risk and more on the line as you get closer to the finish line. And so you're giving it more focus, more energy. What do you look for when profiling villains that you're playing against as it relates to like data points? Like what are you looking for to, so that you can exploit potentially exploit down the road if, if you get an opportunity? Yeah. I mean, it's more paying attention to like, certain lines that they take with certain hands and how I would do something different than that. And then looking at, looking at how they play certain hands and then seeing what I can do to exploit their normal pattern with their normal hands. So we don't have to, we don't have to give any names or anything, but just let's, let's dive into like a practical example. Right. So, yeah, I got it. Here's like a couple basic ones, like at the final table. Anytime this one player would be dealt ace king, he would just, if it didn't matter if he had 20 or 30 blinds or even 35 blinds, he would just go all in at the final table because he was afraid to play that hand. So, like, knowing that, you know, it makes me, it makes me have play hands. It's very easy to play against that particular strategy. Or there was another player that was, really good but i only saw him limp huge hands so he's limping aces ace king and and kings and so being able to know that you know his range is really strong with doing that i mean he only turned over those hands so i don't really know if he was doing that with weaker hands too but all the hands that i got shown were huge hands and he coolered everybody when that happened so you know yeah, it's it, it's double pronged, right? Like when player jams ace king, right? With twenty or thirty bigs, when they just raise, it it informs us about what they're just raising with, right? And right. it removes ace king from their raising range. And then if the same villain is like limping aces kings ace king oh, this, is a different, this is a different villain Sorry. right yeah a different a yeah. different villain is limping aces kings ace king then when they open that informs our three betting strategy because if their plan is to limp the big hands when they do open it uh weakens their opening range so correct so we can jam over the top uh yeah. wider exactly and that's, and that's what did i that and that's what i ended up doing 
and uh, basically the most crucial hand at the final table. I mean, everybody was kind of pretty shallow at the final table. One player four-handed had like 70% of the chips in play. So it was an interesting dynamic. And most of the final table was, you know, not more than a 20 big average. So uh, one of the crucial hands was this guy that I was talking about that jamming, was jamming ace-king was definitely a inexperienced player and had never been in this situation before. Actually, with like 50 left, I got all in ace-king versus his ace-10. He was at risk. I wasn't at risk. And uh, he uh, rivered a king for Broadway for a three-outer to double up and survive and to get to this point. But So he opened the button for 2.2x, and I was in the big blind with sevens. So I rejammed, and he had a covering stack, and he had been doing a little bit of raise folding and you know obviously he would have been jamming ace king and maybe even ace queen here probably i don't know he might have opened ace queen but for sure he would have jammed ace king um so i rejammed he had two jacks unfortunately and i drilled a seven right on the flop so that's kind of how tournaments go and that's it's you know, very very skillful get... very skillful of you right. very just Beaking right. the seven on the flop, right? This yeah. <laughs> tur tournament poker, right? Um, yes. Every one, every one of those that we get are the ones that we need. Um, and that was certainly the one that you needed. Uh, you mentioned somebody had 70% of the chips in play. I'm assuming that someone was not you because you didn't say it was, it was no, you. No, I did not. So, I mean, there was four-handed was a very interesting dynamic. And luckily, right away, the... Uh, I had a similar stack to uh, another player and he jammed the button. The big stack folded. I had two tens. I called. He had ace deuce. We held. So that kind of, you know, prevented the big stack from putting a ton of ICM pressure on us and forcing us to just fold down to nothing, trying to ladder. And yeah, um, that, that would have been painful if right. the big stack, I mean, they're, they're just going to shove every single chance they get as they rightfully right, should. basically right and they rightfully should until one of us or two of us double so um just because we're forced to fold so much in that spot so i was very lucky like very early on in that situation to double up and be able to counteract him and then yeah so then three-handed i made probably the decision that i regret the most it worked out i got lucky but the uh, short stack who had six and a half blinds shoved the button and I have about 25-ish big blinds, maybe a little bit more. I think we're still at 1.2. Uh, yeah, somewhere about, about there. And uh, I had jack seven of diamonds in the big blind and I called his six to seven blind shove, which I I did before the night of the final table definitely look at you know, shoving and uh, and calling ranges for you know six to fifteen blind situations like button versus big blind, you know, cutoff versus big blind and situations like that because I hadn't really looked into that in a while. So I did go and review some of that stuff. So that that helped. I think this one was probably a fold, but. 
in game it felt close and taking that shot to get heads up i kind of thought that that was okay in the in the moment and being able to get heads up with a decent stack where i mean i was still two even if i won this hand i was still two to one i was still i would still would have been at a two to one chip de- deficit so how bad is the the call icm wise like looking back on it afterwards because like i'm not a tournament player and it seems right. pretty close to me to remove icm pressure to bust out the short stack but again <laughs> i ha- i'm very unstudied as it relates right. to like um game it, it, it definitely was slightly negative um i can't put into i haven't done the exact calculation to see how negative it was yeah um but i think it was basically pretty close to neutral overall i got a i didn't i haven't looked at it that was more from just talking with my friends and all of that so it was more that than me like actually looking back and seeing oh, what this were was like a, what were their opinions on it uh fold <laughs> pretty cut and dry just fold yeah, um right. why, why is it such a clear fold for them i assume and i assume they're like high level um, mtt guys right right yeah these guys play way more tournaments than than i do and i value and trust their opinion uh just because doubling him up uh increases my chances of getting third where if I, you know, am jamming on him or let the big stack jam on on him with his small stack, he's forced to pick up a hand and I get heads up way more often than calling in basically a marginal EV spot. Because it was close. It wasn't like, you know, it was more like I would call Jack Jack 9 suited instead of Jack 7 suited. So it's like one or two pips off on what was close yeah <laughs> two pips off from what was close <laughs> so right. i mean i i understand that that thought process it, it doesn't make sense three three-handed um folding letting the big stack put the short stack at risk so that you know you can ladder up at no risk or minimal risk and i guess once the short stack doubles up from the big stack, then you're taking more chances. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. That, so, okay. MT, that's the yeah. MTT strats for this right. podcast episode, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Very rare occurrence. Yeah. Um, so I assume the Jack-7, you win. I do. You win he, the Jack-7? Yeah, he flips over Jack-10 and I drill a 7. Yeah, the well, sevens, he, sevens are easy. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I'll get to the final hand too, and there's another seven in there. <laughs> All right, let's let's keep going. So, like, you you bust the short stack, which yeah. takes you to like thirty bigs or so. What was the yeah. what was the uh, percentage of chips that you had in play there? So there's 176 million in play. He had roughly 110 million, and so 115, and I had about 60. So two to one, pretty much. Two to one, yeah. He basically had me two to one. Um, couple hands in, he raises. I call five six off. Um, flop comes eight seven three. Rainbow, uh, and I check. He bets four million, which is about 
half little under half pod because of the big wide ante makes it play a lot bigger heads up i call turn four i check he bets 11 million i jam he calls he has eight seven so pretty bit cooler heads yeah. up <laughs> yeah not 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 a great um situation for him right so get that get the double now i'm two to one we play a bunch of small pots um and kind of just go back and forth i chip away slowly so i have a little bit more than two to one lead basically my strategy heads up was min raise a lot of buttons because of the big blind any play makes it play so much bigger so i want him to make mistakes where he's overfolding in that situation um to getting a really good price and basically playing more pots in position because if i Heads up. Yeah. Sorry, heads, up, heads up with the big blind ante. I mean, facing a min raise. So what are the blinds? What is the big blind ante? Like what's the price that the big blind gets to, to defend? Right. So here? we are playing 800,000, 1.6 million, which <laughs> should probably never play those blinds again. Yeah. <laughs> in a tournament uh, or ever, I guess. <laughs> um, so I would make it 3.2 million and there's, 3.2 dead already, so he's getting four to one. Okay, which basically means you can't really fold anything pre-flop. Correct, right. So, I mean, he definitely was folding some, more than, I would say, at least more than the bottom 5%, probably. But it was such a short heads-up match, it's really hard to extrapolate. Well, if they fold it at all, then they're folding some percentage that's greater right, than zero, exactly. right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But to know exactly whether he was folding the bottom three, bottom five, bottom ten, I couldn't really tell you that. But, Do you know a uh, proper defense strategy there for the big blind? Um, off the top of my head, no. I mean, it was all, you know, just intuition and, you know, like just experience from playing different poker games and being in different situations, playing heads up cash poker. I mean, limit mix mix games plays a role too. I mean, just in like, I, I think sometimes the pot odds model is harder for no limit players to wrap their mind around. Um, right, but yeah. like for limit players, very easy for y'all to wrap your mind around the pot odds model of like getting right. four to one and realizing that like if we're looking purely at raw equity, there's no hand against any range that has less than 20% raw equity. Right, correct. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so chipping away, didn't last long. Tell me about yeah. the con- conclusion. Okay, so last hand, he limps the button. Um, I make it 4 million with queens in the big blind, so 2.5x. Uh, want to keep his hands in there, don't want to go too big and... He had limped a couple of times and I had checked most of the time. So I didn't want to, you know, do something crazy out of the ordinary. And I'd be doing that with a decent range of hands, um, you know, suited broadways, you know, suited aces, you know, ace probably 10 plus, something like that. And basically probably like sevens plus too. I would imagine. So I make it 4 million. Uh, he calls. 
flop is 10-6-4, two hearts and a club. I continuation for 4 million into 9.6, he calls. There's 13.6 million in there. Um, he has roughly 45 million behind. I could be, it's plus or minus. Eh, he's got probably about 40 million behind. Yeah, 40, 40 is correct. Turn is the seven of clubs, um, which is puts a backdoor flush draw out there. So now there's two flush draws out there. He's going to have a lot of, you know, pair plus straight draws, pair plus flush draws. Um, five, seven, seven, eight, seven, nine. Yes, all those hands are, especially with me, with him limping and me raising, like this board is like, you know, pretty heavily weighted towards, you know, his range more so than mine. Like I'm going to have a lot of high cards in this situation. So, but I'm still at the top of my range with Queens in this situation. So I size up and I bet 11 million, basically trying to charge draws and one pair hands. Yeah, get, val get value from top pair. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, cause he's going to have a bunch of stuff like that. So he, he goes and he jams and I call pretty quickly. So he jams about 30 million more. And I call, he's got King eight of clubs. So he has all the outs. He has double gutter, flush draw and an overcard. And, you know, they pause for a dramatic effect and they rip over the seven of hearts. And I boom, win. boom. So yeah, that felt really nice, but there's another seven for you. There's a, Two sevens, actually. Right. Yeah. Multiple sevens. sevens. Right. How how did you feel winning your bracelet? And is that is that your first bracelet? That was my first bracelet. It was the first time I was heads up, even. So uh, it felt really good, especially in that type of field to win. Because I mean, I would have I would have laid a huge price that I would have won my first bracelet in non no limit holdem. Uh, so definitely unexpected. Um, it felt very surreal. Like it took a while for it to like sink in, in me and like appreciate what I did because like in the moment I was like, wow, like, yeah, I played really well and all of that, but I got insanely lucky. I got, I lost a big flip with 14 left and I was down to one and a half blinds with 14 left. So it's like just the whole thing and then getting in sevens versus jacks and like i look back at like all the hands that i got lucky on but then as you know there's hands you get unlucky on so i i don't know it's hard to like conceptualize in tournament poker because like in cash game poker you know when you play well you're going to get rewarded in the long term like you know if you keep putting yourself in plus ev spots and you know if you keep putting yourself in 60 percent spots you're going to turn a profit you know, a vast majority of the time, like, yeah, there's going to be where you're crazy outliers and standard deviations where you're, you know, one, two or three standard deviations from the mean. But the vast majority of the time when you are playing against weaker opponents in a cash game, you're going to win. So like in tournaments, you're, you're most certainly going to win over the course of your life, right? Right. Exactly. Maybe, maybe not that session or the next five sessions or, or even that year, the next 10 or that year. Right. But over right. the course of your life, you're mo you're almost certainly gonna win. Correct. That's yeah. That's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but tournaments, on the other hand, no tournament like saying. live live tournaments. Like you're never gonna reach the long term in those. Like I could have just 
like I've been in similar spots during the World Series where I just got 11 and like nobody remembers a lot like I don't even remember 11 but like <laughs> yeah. you know like I've gotten a bunch of like eighth to 13th and I was just like oh shit like well that's I'm just gonna do it again I'm just gonna finish you know 12th you know and like the variance in those uh, big field insane. tournaments is obscene like just oh, it's obscene insane. right totally insane well i mean you're not going to give it back no <laughs> you're not, not giving it back not. and you won the need you won the ones that you needed to win and, and i think really whenever human beings take down big field tournaments they they're like you just have to run good you have to, right, of course, of course. You have to run good in the critical moments. You just can't overcome right. that. I mean, one point five BBs though. What, what were you thinking when you're down to one point five BBs? Fuck. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like to play that many days. Like this was on day four, you know, mm-hmm. and of you know we're playing 10, 12 hour days every day, and like I'm like, this is gonna, you know, like I'm like I'm like I'm still in it which was nice, especially the way that I got down to 1.5 bigs was I got all in nines versus ace queen for a ton of chips and the board came clean and then it was river queen. And so like, that was like really demoralizing to lose it that way. Yeah. But I was just like, look, I'm going to fight and I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm not out yet. And it only takes a couple of hands to go my way. And then I'm, right back in it and that's kind of what happened so yeah i think people underestimate how a chip sack can grow exponentially quite quickly especially with big blind annie like luckily i wasn't the big blind next hand because if i was the big blind next hand then i would only be getting you know i wouldn't even be doubling up because Mm -hmm. i would be getting because i'd have to put in 500k and then i could only win 250 times however many people are in the pot so if three people are in the pot i can i can i can only double up so if two people are in the pot i'm only winning 1.25 million but when I get to shove 750, there's 500k already dead, and then I can get, you know, let's say the big blind. Well, a guy rejammed right next to me. The next That's nice. So yeah, right. So I got my 750 plus his 750 plus 750 from the blinds plus 500 from the middle. So I was instantly up to 2.75 million when I won that hand, yeah. which was, you know, five and a half bigs. So getting a really good price on, uh. Going all in in the dark. <laughs> right. I mean, I had ace four, so it was way above average. But yeah, I mean, I had to pick a hand before my big blind mm-hmm. to go in. And the sooner that I did that, the more chance that somebody was going to rejam and isolate because obviously they're getting such a great price on it too. Yeah. To isolate and just make it four bigs or even. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Reflop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. 
John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Boot Camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, Head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Tell me, so you go through all of this, like at the end, didn't sink it, like has it sunk in now? And how do you feel like looking back and reflecting on this experience? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible experience, um, especially as being a professional poker player for the last, I mean, for sure last 11 years, but probably 15 years, I would say, um, playing in high school and all of that, because I was definitely trying hard to win then and learning and studying then. So it's pretty an amazing feeling, even like looking back at it now, I can appreciate it. And it's nice to get the recognition too. Like I go play a cash game and when I don't get a bunch of congratulation texts and like my phone was blowing up for the next that night. And then the following day, because cash games don't really get the, and rightfully so they don't get the recognition that. Well, they don't would, get the prestige. 
right? right exactly so yeah nobody knows when you win or lose in a cash game so uh yeah successful uh, successful poker player for 15 years straight nobody cares win a tournament and now everybody's like wow look at you finally right, found exactly. success <laughs> he right, finally exactly. made it mike right. well done right so yeah i mean it's kind of like a like i'm very appreciative and like humbled by it but at the same time i'm like you know i don't even know how to put this into words like it's like i appreciate the recognition but i also understand how kind of silly it is at the same time because yeah you can be a really good tournament player like i'm not knocking tournament players or whatever because i enjoy playing tournaments you know occasionally and and all that but it's like the variance and just like because like if i just get third or fourth like does anybody say any like does it do i get like a bunch of like congratulations or whatever or like walking down the hallway saying congrats like nobody's congratulating me if i get third you know right. or if i just lose the heads up match even then like there's not many people are going to be like oh yeah you know congrats because it's like if you don't win it's like ricky bobby says if you're not first you're last <laughs> right exactly exactly um yeah i think like as long-term professional poker players we kind of see the the ludicrous nature of it and it it is a little bit ludicrous but at least in my defense with chasing poker greatness right i'm pretty sure you were scheduled before you won i know you were scheduled before you won the tournament Correct. And I think you yeah. had to reschedule at somewhere in the middle of that tournament. Yes, that is correct. Because I, I went to like cardplayer.com and it was like, Mike Murray wins WSOP right. bracelet. I was like, oh shit, now I see. Right. I see why he rescheduled now. That's right, well, because it, it, they, they were all 10 a.m. restarts every day. And normally the restarts for the 3 p.m. events are 2 p.m. And so... I'm never usually playing before 2 p.m. So I was like, okay, yeah, I can go schedule. Like I scheduled this out, you know, a couple sure. of weeks ahead of time. And then, you know, but so I normally don't play these events that restart at 10 a.m. either. <laughs> so it was fate. It was fated. Exactly. Well, congratulations, man. It's, Thank you. Uh, it's an exciting experience. And whether high variance or not, whether, you know, it ever happens again, which I mean, I think you and I are both realists that like these things, they're tough to happen one time. So yeah, I'm it. very fortunate that it happened one time for me because I could have gone my whole career without winning one. And right. the next six or seven tournaments I've played since I won, I've been basically out right away. <laughs> get out of here you can't do right. well in another one this series right. i mean you, you can make it heads up five times in a row and lose every single time i mean like that's just the the nature, the nature. Of, right exactly it, it's a tough it's a tough world I, I have immense respect for tournament grinders just because it's it's a tough existence like i don't know how they can make tough. a living doing that year in and year out it just it doesn't, I can't conceptualize that people can, or A, would want to, because the amount of hours that you have to put in for that, it just, I don't know, it doesn't compute with me that, like, people can make a living playing just tournaments. I know that there, I'm not knocking that that it doesn't exist. I'm definitely agreeing that exists, but 
it seems really hard and really stressful to me that I would that somebody would want to go down that path. Yeah, a, a good friend of mine who actually came on the podcast, Joe DeSimone, he was a cash game, gr- cash game grinder forever. He switched tournaments over the last like three or four years. Um, I told him pretty sheepishly, like I've never had a day where I just fired up tournaments online. Like not one day ever in 17 years of playing poker professionally have I just had like, oh, this is an MTT day. I'm going to fire up MTTs and play these all day. And he hadn't either until he dove into the MTT world. And basically, he's pretty hooked. I mean, he he's convinced that like with high volume MTTs, you over the course of years, you can have a better yearly earn than cash games. The variance Online, yeah, is sorry. obscene. Oh, right. Online yeah. for sure. I was talking more about in the live realm. The live realm, I can't even I can't even right. fathom that. That's like I mean he's right. he's like grinding, you know, 10, 15 tables at a time. Like right. Way different situation. I, yeah. I was strictly talking about live with travel expenses. Like it's a great way to see the world. Like if the world was back to normal and I could go and you know travel to a stop and happen to play a tournament there, but then really be for vacation, but have an excuse for me to get to go see somewhere else and get me out of my comfort zone. I would say that's an added bonus, but I wouldn't be going to just play poker if I were to travel and go to like back when, like if if the world's back to normal, like being able to like go to EPTs and like do the stuff that I haven't done in the past would be kind of nice because I just haven't done that ever. Yeah, I think for the listener, um, if if any listener out there has intents on being like a live MTT tournament grinder, it's exceptionally difficult. And you most likely need to learn how to play cash um, to supplement and make hourly rate when you're busted out of your tournaments. Like travel, living expenses, all that stuff. Not like food. It just it's very hard to overcome. Like you need to be playing pretty big to have an ROI that justifies, um, you know, plane ticket, hotel costs, all this stuff. And guys that you see doing that are most of the time absolutely buried in makeup is the hard truth of it. You know, they're not, you know, covering their tournament buy-ins or they're, or they're either selling at, you know, a markup to be able to free roll and, you know, skate by. So those are two of the things that like, it might look on the outside, like they're doing really well, but you don't really know what the true situation is. Sure. And I mean, if you're going to do it, you should probably just live in Vegas. I mean, you, right. I mean, you you can live, you can play in a tournament series every day of the year almost and you could play some sort of 300 plus buy-in every day but i'll take the two five no limit grinder has a better yearly return than uh you know 500 average buy-in tournament player i i I take that as well i'm just saying if you're gonna if you want to give it a go you got to live near a place where you can get in action in MTTs like pretty much on a daily basis and you've got to get get your ass in the seat and grind and grind and grind and grind. It's it's very difficult. 
Yes, I, I agree completely with that. Look, I started playing when I was, you know, 18 years old. I would fire up tournaments on Sunday and I would just play a full slate of tournament schedule on, on Sundays and that would be my tournament days. And then occasionally I would play tournaments like in the evenings or whatever, but most of the time I was grinding either sitting goes or I was playing three, six limit. Oh, eight, 25 cent, 50 cent PLO. Like those were the things that were funding my tournament buy-ins. So I was using cash games to try and, bank a big score from tournaments because tournaments do give you that leverage where you can have a windfall and then that changes what your day-to-day life looks like. Absolutely. It's hard, it's hard to have that and then, you know, be able to rein it in like, oh, well, I can just go jump from two, five to 25, 50, you know, on like a, I don't know, 200k score or something like that so it's you got to be able to you know keep it in perspective too you know it, it is nice to be able to have that and then have that security as like a poker player but you need to you know be able to check yourself and have an ego like you can't be like i just want a tournament i'm the best player in the world like a, you hear a ton of interviews where people are like you know I'm the best in the world now. I mean, it's like, no, you just want a fucking tournament. Who cares? Like, I know to put it, you know, bluntly, but it's like, I mean, I'm, yeah, the, the reality is like, as prof- as a professional poker player, you have to manage your risk. And this manifests in multiple ways. And like, when you do get that windfall, it does give you the, um, it, it makes you able to play bigger stakes than you normally play. So let's say you typically play 2-5. Um, you can now play 10-20 NL, right? Uh, right. You, can, you can probably play 25-50 NL technically with 200K, um, but we don't know. You, you don't know whether your skill level merits that jump yet. And, and so, like, take it and one step at a time. I mean, 40 buy-ins, live poker. I don't even know where 25-50 live poker even spreads on a regular basis. Like, maybe in vegas and bellagio but not a ton There's, of places right bellagio has like 50 100 no limit yeah. right now and it's basically 10 20 and then there's in, in the high stakes scene it's like basically like there's just massive jumps so it's like you either play you know and then there's also politics too within all of those games sure also, so even if you know you were had the bankroll to be even play it Maybe you get in, maybe you don't. Like, it depends on who you know and, like, a bunch of other factors. But, yeah, so. Just yeah, test yourself, right? right? Exactly. Like, just just play, get some results, get some data, think about it, um, internalize, recalibrate, and figure it out from there. Like, maybe you can move up to that sick. Maybe you're skillful enough to do so. Maybe the variance is such that it's not as big of a risk, but at least do the calculations. Think about it. Don't go to like Texas and buy in for 100K and they're like 10, 20, 40, 80, 160 straddle game, right? Like just be smart. Um, I think it's just a major takeaway. Like think about the risk, analyze the risk and check try not ego. to check. Yeah, check your ego. Um, which Again, you know, fundamentally, you went from playing high six cash mixed game, you win a tournament, 
you are not a significantly better player <laughs> at the right. end of the week. Exactly. You are the same oh. exact player that you were when you bought into the tournament, pretty much, right? Right. I mean, I'm doing the same, like, I'm doing the same thing that I was doing before I won the tournament. Like, it's just, it's nice to have the money, but it doesn't, it's not changing what I'm doing on a daily basis or what I'm playing really. Like, yeah, like I'm more comfortable and like I can withstand more variants and don't like, and if I was, you know, selling pieces or whatever to like certain higher stakes games, like I can sell less now if I wanted to, or I could just do the exact same thing that I was doing beforehand. You know, it doesn't like, it's not going to change my day-to-day outlook as a professional poker player. Yeah. And I think that's a very smart, intelligent way to go about it. Um, now let's segue into some lightning round questions here, uh, for the round two, what would you consider a weakness that you've had related to your poker game and what steps have you taken to overcome said weakness? Uh, I think my weakness is definitely now is studying and I've kind of put more concentration in on, you know, reviewing math spots and just kind of brushing up more and being sharper in that facet of the game, because I've kind of, as I play more, I've been kind of more comfortable in certain spots, but having that brush up and having that, you know, checking up and making sure that I'm doing, you know, the correct thing, even if I like think I know what the correct thing is to be checking up on that math and like in certain like one V one draw spots or even in no limit tournaments, like I said, like I hadn't really brushed up on like push full charts and what you should be calling and shoving with in certain with certain blinds and certain and then calling with based on how many blinds they're shoving from what position they're shoving from stuff like that so just kind of being sharper on more of the mathematics i guess and fundamentals yeah and i mean it's easy to it poker's more fun to play than to study typically and so like it's easy to just fall in this habit of getting in the getting in there battling and then not thinking about poker because you just played it for like 12 to 14 hours um right easy to fall out of the habit uh what's a poker related thing that folks rave about that hasn't worked for you like a performance enhancing type of activity tool uh i would say like some of the i mean this is i don't really play in these type of or i don't really need this but like using like pio and munker and all these you know gto solvers i've dabbled a little bit in them but i don't really see especially when you're playing tournaments you know, doing something, in my opinion, that's GTO or like that's balanced. You don't need to be balanced against these guys. Like most of these people don't even know, you know, that are paying attention to like for you to be even balanced or no. So like you can almost basically turn your cards face up and they still wouldn't know what you have, you know? So it's like 
being able to differentiate, you know, because like I cannot compete against those high rollers and those high roller no limit hold'em events. I have no qualms in saying I am out of my league in that. Like I just haven't put any time and effort into that. But there's a lot of people that are using Pio and all of these new tools that I'm just like, I would rather use like my knowledge and my base and like pay attention to what other people are doing and figuring out how to exploit that than trying to be balanced in a spot that you don't really need to be balanced in. Yeah, I mean, I I go on about Pio every conversation, me and Pio. Again, yeah. it's a powerful tool, but it's a calculator that requires inputs and incomplete right. data and incomplete information. And if you were to input exact data points on the players that you're playing against, Pio would suggest to take an exploitative path um, or what's viewed outside as an exploitative path. And I mean, right. we're playing poker against human beings. We're not playing poker against computers or solvers. And that's a good thing. And it means that like right. human beings are exploitable. They ha make strategic mistakes and we ought to be using our heads and using those data points in order to guide our decision-making. Um, and to just trust a map that doesn't take any of that into consideration, I think is a big mistake in a lot of cases when you're playing poker. Right. I agree with that for sure. What's a common assumption people make about their poker careers you think they should spend some more time thinking about? Uh, I think the results that you have in the short term, I think people put way too much weight on where you need a longer outlook and being able to be objective through the short term and not let yourself get too wrapped up in any one thing, whether it's winning or losing. What's a better path you think than a results driven path? Uh, I think it's like a introspective and being able to reflect on, you know, taking notes in a session and like being able to objectively go over hands and have having people that you trust to give you an objective opinion and not, you know, blow smoke up your ass or whatever, like is so critical because them giving you that feedback and you guys and you discussing, oh, well, I was thinking this. And then they're like, oh, I didn't think about this. And then, you know, and vice versa, like I didn't think about this. And like, I didn't realize that this was going on in the situation. And, you know, I could have played this slightly different. And that's kind of what I think on that. It's like, yeah. In TV shows and movies, I'm not a detective and I don't actually know the protocol for police in the United States, but I know that in TV shows, at least if you're connected or close to a crime, like you're related to the victim, you're not allowed to be on the case, right? Because you have emotional bias that interferes with objective decision-making. And when you're, when you are the one who's analyzing your own plays, it's very easy to be emotionally biased based on the actions that you took. It's hard right. to see your blind spots. And so it's very important to have those outside sources that can give you clarity 
on things that you you will never see. Right. And I reflect on that early in my poker career. Like it was just me. Like I didn't a lot of these people that came up in the early 2000s to late 2000s, they were working with a group of people that were all trying to be really good. So you look at all like the top players, they were all studying, working together, learning new things. Like someone like me, I was figuring it out on my own. I didn't really know anybody that, you know, I respected and trust and felt like, you know, could help me at that time. Uh, and it wasn't until later that I found people that, you know, had similar drive and ambition as I did. And then to be able to work with them and be able to talk about different situations. And, you know, you're, I'm talking with different people about different things. Like some people are stronger in no limit tournaments. Some people are stronger in draw games for cash games, or some people are, you know, for big bet, but then we play big bet with the cap and that changes a lot of, you know, I can go on and on with that. Sure. Type of stuff. Yeah. So. It's, it's ultra important. And, you know, I'm working on a project right now that I'm calling CPG wolves. It's going to be a coaching for profit operation. And it's the same concept in mind, right? Getting a group of guys together, me coaching, and then them collectively learning and growing together as a unit. Um, sharing replays okay. of coaching sessions, studying those replays, having weekly group meetings, discussing poker, learning, growing together. It's just, it's just the best way to improve. It's just the best way to get as good as you can at poker as quickly as you can. There's no alternative to that. Um, and, and so, you know, challenge the listener to plug in somewhere to some community because your bankroll, your future self will just thank you immensely. Yeah. Poker is not like a team sport, but it's a team sport off the felt. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. You Iron sharpens iron and you need people to bounce ideas off of, to challenge you, to investigate your emotional biases, to investigate assumptions, to challenge assumptions, to see your blind spots. You need this because human beings, it's a struggle, man. We're, we're not wired to be professional poker players biologically. So we, we need these outside sources to help us navigate. Um, have you made any purchases in the past year that have been impactful to either your poker game or your life? Major purchases? No. I would say no. Any mi minor purchases? Just something that you're like, wow, this, this was a good thing. I mean, I'm... I'm renting a condo in Vegas right now that, you know, has like, so I have two now bases. So I have Los Angeles and Vegas now. So it's nice sleeping in like my own bed here instead of like either staying at a friend's or hotel hopping or whatever. It's kind of nice to have my own spot here, I guess would be the only kind of significant purchase, but you know, it's not like really a long-term, a long-term thing. So, well, makes your life better for now. So I right. guess makes it easier and, you know, there's, you know, gym and amenities here. And so I don't have, like, I can, it's more of like a home base now than it would be like, just like coming here for like a week and playing cash games and then going home or whatever. Yeah. Have you ever strongly believed something in your poker career? only to change your mind 
and what led to that change? All the time. I think, I don't think there's one specific example, but I'm constantly wrong. Like, and that's okay. And being, I think it's more important that I realize that I'm constantly wrong or somebody, even somebody saying like making some comment at the table that like, you know, I played a hand a certain way, or even if I'm not in the hand, somebody saying something about somebody else and then thinking about that and being able to reflect on that and be like, why are they saying that? Or why should I be doing something different than what I was doing in a certain spot? Or if it's like, even if it's off point, you still gain an insight into how people think, which can be helpful in the future, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I'm wrong more than I'm right in life and in poker. And I I think that like the more I learn, the less I realize that I know. And, you know, that's just the the reality of a life experience, um, navigating the poker world. Like you're just very often wrong and that's okay. You have to be able to accept that. You have to be able to say, I don't know. If you don't know an answer to a question, just say, I don't know. You know, there's nothing, nothing that like if somebody in the poker world pretends to have all the answers they're lying they don't or they're delusional right it's smoking mirrors right nobody's got all the answers we're all learning we're all growing and the and answers are changing too the answers, the answers are change for sure right mm-hmm. right so as uh, eric seidel says um less certainty more inquiry he he says that so much better than than I do. Just very <laughs> compact four words. Um, you working on any projects that are near and dear to your heart? Uh, poker wise, life wise, poker wise. At the moment, uh, no. I'm doing some sports betting stuff, um, models wise, and that side of my life that I'm working on, which is taking up a decent part of my time but not anything i mean it's kind of taken a back burner while i'm like i basically dedicated these two months to poker and i'm in poker mode but uh sports betting is you know near and dear to my heart and i find it very fascinating and the answers there are more black and white and even though there's a lot of variance within that but it feels like even though I have no control over the outcome, it still feels like I have some control, if that makes sense. Talk about a world that is driven and invaded by emotional biases, the sporting world, um, just betting on sports, rooting on your favorite team, so many biases. Uh, oh, so cheering, many. Right. Cheering, cheering for the guys that uh, <laughs> wear the jersey that you prefer. It's, it's crazy. Right. Uh, God. Um, it, taking out all of that stuff and being very objective on it and then having, you know, the results be whatever the results are is very humbling. I think it's also made me a better poker player because, you know, it makes you realize, you know, you can put in all the hard work and you can come to the right answer and it still doesn't work out. Now, over the long term, it should work out just like poker, but you're constantly battling 
that and it's way easier to tell like you can just fire in something because you feel like that's what you should do on that day and not trust your process so if anything it's made me realize that like you need to trust your process and you need to stick to that and if you need to retool your process that's okay too sure i mean you, but just it, going out there and firing whatever because you feel like that's what you want to do or you tilt or whatever like there's for sure tilting in sports betting oh i mean it, it's almost inevitable right like yeah. it, very again you're playing for the long term but the short term feels very real <laughs> and yeah. sometimes it's hard to see the long term when you're in the midst of the short term yeah um cool man well with that we're gonna we'll wrap up and Excellent. final question where can the chasing poker greatness if they want to learn more about you find you on the World Wide web twitter is probably the best if you want to message me i'm not really that big of social media i don't really have that big of a social media presence but if anybody wants to contact me or you know pick my brain on anything i'm happy to help and you can reach me at twitter at mike nori so awesome that is the best spot to reach me and thanks brad for having me on again and it was uh fun talking to you yeah it's it, it's a pleasure congratulations again and um best of luck for the rest of the series get in there give it hell yeah. and we'll catch I'm up do. hopefully yeah. win another one <laughs> win another one we'll, we'll catch up sooner or later man take that care best good. of luck thank you okay bye thanks for listening to chasing poker greatness you can subscribe on apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast app go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter join the greatness village community book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.